0: Welcome, guys, and thank you so much for coming. We are the Voyager Collective. We're going to live record our first podcast today, and uh, thank you, and thank you, Diogo, for making the amazing music that we just heard, and for helping us with all the technical details. I think we're all much more knowledgeable in all the things, and um, we're going to start. Mm-hmm. Yay! Ooh, <laughs> Um, Yeah, so uh, welcome to Voyager Radio. This is a podcast about design fiction, where we explore the interplay between science fact and science fiction through the use of creatively designed artifacts that may or may not exist yet, in order to make sense of and think critically about possible futures. I'm Barbara. I'm Yanni. And I'm Caroline. Thanks for joining
1: us. Today, we're talking about the history, definitions, and practical applications of this discipline.
2: So, Barbara, what is design fiction?
0: (laughs) The question of the day, right? Uh, Well, design fiction is a mix of design, science facts, and science fiction. Uh, It uses objects as storytelling devices, placing them in speculative realities, questioning and creating discourse over subjects and ideas that we might not even consider yet. How did this practice come to be? Design's fiction conceptual foundation is critical design, which was popularized by Anthony Doon and Fiona Raby, but it can be traced back to the radical designers of the 70s. After the World Wars, people became suspicious of the modernist faith in human reason, judgment, and technological progress. The old creative and production processes started to seem out of place. Architecture and design groups like Superstudio ArchiZoom and ArchiGram started questioning the disciplines that they practice and the established structures that their work was perpetuating. They asked a lot of questions like, what if we don't need more buildings? What if a couch wasn't just for sitting? What if cities could move? And a lot more what ifs. They thought about how people interacted with the products they created and speculated on the impact of their creations in the world. Following this tradition, Product designer Anthony Doon and architect Fiona Rabi got together in the 90s and started researching and creating design objects that follow this tradition of critical thought. Um, yeah, they started working on the design interactions department at the Royal College of Art and they made it a hub of professionals in the area of critical design. They also developed tools that will later form the foundation of design fiction and its methodology. The term itself, design fiction, was coined in 2005 by a science fiction author called Bruce Sterling. And um, he wrote a book, Shaping Things, where he talks about the history of objects, their connection with their context, as well as their future. In his 2009 essay, Design Fiction, Julian Bleeker, which is a member of the near-future laboratory, a very important um, player in the design fiction field, further explores the relationship between design objects and stories and starts wondering how they can help us look into the future and maybe shape it. A little bit like the designers from the 70s, he started asking a lot of questions and realizing that maybe a new discipline was being created. One that maybe could help designers find some answers or also just ask a lot more questions.
2: That is quite an extensive history. (laughs) It was. I'm very thirsty now. (laughs) So how did you become interested in this?
0: I'm very interested in the ways uh, humans try to make sense of the world we live in and the way we also use stories as tools of understanding reality. And I think that design fiction can work as that tool in today's societal context in the same way that myths used to do in earlier civilizations. The origin of the word mythology comes from mythos, narrative fiction, and logia, which means discourse or to be able to talk about. Design fiction gives us the ability to create a free space for discourse and speculation, as well as a glimpse into the future possibilities, so we can build awareness and react without actually being in that situation. It really reminds me of the oracles, like the ones in Delphi, who brought precognition of the future inspired by the gods, and, yeah, I think people need these tools to make sense of being alive. Tools might change, but the need stays the same. Okay. Uh, do you have any examples of myth that share some, of the, some themes with design fiction? Sure. So, um, a big concern, I feel, at the moment is technology. Of course, it's very related to our theme. And also how sometimes we don't predict its consequences so well. And I think a good example of this is the myth of Prometheus, that really explores this question. Prometheus was a cultural hero. He stole the fire from the gods to give it back to humans, in essence, giving us technology that we didn't have before. Because of this, he was punished and doomed to eternal suffering, guts out, all 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 those terrible things. But he actually represents human striving, particularly the quest for scientific knowledge, as well as the risk of overreaching and of unintended um, consequences. Yeah, we also see Mary Shelley. She referenced this classical tale when she gave her novel, Frankenstein, that I think we all know. Uh, it's one of the first science fiction stories. And she, um, the subtitle of Frankenstein is actually modern day Prometheus. And uh, yeah, we can see these themes of unintended technological consequences, also present, for example, in uh, Black Mirror episodes. Be right back. And uh, yeah, what happens in this episode? There's a woman. She was her partner in an accident. And she orders an experimental IE replacement in an attempt to deal with grief. But she quickly realizes that it's not her deceased partner and that this was not the ideal scenario um, she was hoping for. When Eugenia quit a lunch replica, I don't know if you guys know about it. It's kind of a IE chatbot and she created it to deal also with the death of a close friend. Uh, However, people were very fast to compare the app to the IE in the episode of Black Mirror and questioned if Replica couldn't end up having a similar outcome. Very curious about how we see these old themes and stories being recreated throughout time and also how we create new ones to serve our post post modernist world yeah, I think that design fiction can help us, and that makes it very fascinating to me. Yeah.
1: Okay, can you talk to us about some design fiction projects that are interesting to you in this
0: sense? Yes, one of them is uh, Heavy Load from Takram Studios. They designed an automatic toileting device, but I usually just call it a robotic diaper because that's what it is. <laughs> Supposedly this object would eliminate the need to go to the toilet, Making workers more productive is supposed to be worn at work. For workers, they don't have to stop to go to the bathroom. And uh, yeah, although our first reaction to this project might be to laugh, which I think it's always good, um, I think that it it can be a good conversation starter for a lot of fundamental human questions. Because it plays with our very human fear of being replaced. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, it allows us to create discourse over subject matters that we might not have thought of otherwise, and also maybe take some measures to avoid some even more awkward uh, moments between co-workers, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and there's also another one, uh, which is called Red Silk of Fate, and it's by Sputniko. And I think this is a very good example of a very complete design fiction project, and this one intersects mythological themes in a much more referential way. Yeah, she was inspired by an East Asian myth that says that the gods tied a red string of fate between people who are destined to fall in love. If you ever watched this anime called Your Name, it has the same red strings of faith.
1: Has anyone ever seen
0: it? Yay! <laughs> in this project, she worked with scientists from the NIAS to genetically engineer uh, silkworms to spin the red string of fate. And what she did, she inserted genes that produce oxytocin, sorry, it's a very difficult uh, word, um, which is a social bonding um, hormone, and also the genes of a red glowing coral into silkworm eggs, which made the string um, shine. What she also did, she produced a video that shows also the scenario in which these... um, prototype. Yadi will explain later what a... You'll understand it in a few minutes. Yeah. Um, where this could exist, and it tells the story of a very awkward uh, aspiring genetic engineer. She creates these worms in order to win over her, the heart of her crush. She um, produces a string, and then she sews it into her scarf. But she's very quickly realizes that the consequences were not what she was wanted. not a good idea. <laughs> yeah, no, it was not the best of ideas. I think um, humans need a mystery and curiosity to evolve. I'm very curious about what happens when we can actually, with the help of science, recreate these myths that we've been telling for so long. I think design fiction allows us this opportunity to create new myths to deal with reality, technology, everything. There's a story from Ray Bradbury that I really like and it's called The Time Become Vector. And it really speaks of the role of design fiction as a tool of understanding um, our world and also to create meaning for ourselves. In it, a man uh, known as the time traveler, he builds a machine so he can um, time travel and visit the future. He brings news of a great civilization with many helpful and wonderful inventions and who lives in harmony with nature and themselves people motivated by this vision start working towards this future, and it comes to pass. Uh, But later in his life, when he's interviewed about what he accomplished, he said, I lied. He invented the motivational fiction for human progress, and I think that's what design fiction
1: can be. So this story Barbara just told us is a really good example of fictional stories acting as motivators to imagine future worlds. And so picking up where she left, I want to introduce you to diegetic prototypes. I know this is sounds like a really big word and some of you might have not heard this term before, but I can guarantee you, you've you seen them. You know what they are once I'll, once I'll point it out to you.
2: Is this the part where shiny cool gadgets yeah. come in? Yeah.
1: Yes, lots and lots of shiny cool gadgets. So we know by now that design fiction create speculative scenarios to explore and critique possible futures through designed artifacts. These artifacts are, according to Bruce Sterling, who we've mentioned before, uh, and the author who coined the term design fiction, diegetic prototypes. What we must understand beforehand and before we even begin talking about diegetic prototypes is that in design fiction, diegetic prototypes are more complex than regular prototypes.
2: And why is that?
1: Well, a prototype is a a preliminary version of an object, a model of, while a diegetic prototype is a fully functioning piece of technology within a fictional world. That's the little but in this this question. So have you guessed what a diegetic (laughs) prototype is? No? I see a lot of blank faces. (laughs) Well, um, a diegetic prototype is a cinematic depiction of technological possibilities. It's the shiny gadget that Caroline was alluring to. So it's an object or technology that is demonstrated to a large public audience via films.
2: You mean like that large computer screen that Tom Cruise was working on in Minority Report? Exactly. That is a diegetic prototype. That's, that's what it is.
1: A+. plus. So, in sci-fi films, a diegetic prototype is presented to the audience within its fictional world. The film's narrative contextualizes the diegetic prototype, or technology, by demonstrating its need, viability, and benevolence, and by presenting it, and this is the main difference between a diegetic prototype and a regular prototype, as a fully functioning object. Through the film's narrative and context, the technology is normalized as a practical object used in everyday life. This means that we, the audience, we we don't spend half of the film gawking at the technology that's presented to us. We accept it as part of that fictional world and in turn, it becomes part of the background. We don't question its existence within the narrative and we don't question its technological feasibility either because we view this film as fiction. So it's okay, basically. Uh, But although we are seeing a fictional world, the diegetic prototype in it must still be presented in a logical way in order to be effective.
2: Can we go back to Minority Report?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And I'm grudgingly giving you a spoilers alert, because you should have seen this film by now. So here goes. It's the year 2054, and Chief John Anderton, Tom Cruise, is working to predict the location of a future murder on the computer I've mentioned earlier, using a gestural interface with gestural recognition, a technology that is now in development and and is very similar to the multi-touch interfaces that we all know so well by now. This gestural language that we see Tom Cruise using in the film was actually developed, so it exists really as a language, and it was developed by John Underkoffler one of Spielberg's science consultants in the film. This computer is a great example of a diegetic prototype. That's why we were all laughing, because it's perfect. So its technology is not yet possible, but we don't question its existence within the story, since the film narrative provided the necessary cues to the social, cultural, and political context of the time. Another interesting technology, if some of you saw the film, you might remember, and that really, really shocked me when I first saw it was the personalized and targeted advertising that we see interacting with Chief Anderton in the scene where he's fleeing the pre-crime force. That doesn't sound so far-fetched today. No, it (laughs) doesn't. Especially because we're all um, familiar with Facebook's attempt at um, personalized advertising. And an interesting fact that IBM... Among others, is developing billboards capable of facial recognition. So it will recognize your face and direct advertisement directly to you that, you, that it thinks you might be interested in. We can also see a similar example of this type of invasive advertisement you said it,
2: girl. <laughs>
1: <laughs> on a Netflix sci-fi show. I don't know if you've seen the latest one, Altered Carbon. Yeah. I, saw, I heard it, yeah. <laughs> There's a scene where he's walking down the street and he's assaulted visually by all of this advertisement. That's the future, I'm warning you. So diegetic prototypes are often portrayed in films to test ideas of new technology but it's, uh, and its possible impacts and even its acceptance with the general public. Within a design fiction, They enable the means to critique and expose possible flaws or unexpected impacts, leading the way to explore alternatives.
2: Man, from film props to social critiques, diegetic prototypes have a really broad scope of use. Yes,
1: they do, and that's actually not the only one, because they've been used to get funding for research or development and to reduce fear or anxiety and even to stimulate desire in audiences in regards to technological possibilities. They've also been used to allow audiences to witness scientific disasters in the hopes it will stimulate public action. Can you give us some examples? Yes, I can. Surprisingly, right? (laughs) Yes, (laughs) surprisingly I I can. So David Kirby, he, he really went into the story of design of diegetic prototypes and he mentions quite a few interesting films. And a film that he mentions is a German silent film called Frau im Mond, from 1929. This film not only demonstrated the basics of rocket travel, I mean, it's 1929, people, but it also demonstrated the multi-stage rocket and provided Romanian rocket scientist Hermann Obat, who was a consultant in the film, with funding opportunities for his scientific research once the film came out, This is a clear example of the early use of science fiction to promote and secure funding for space initiatives. Another example he mentions, and this one was used to reduce fear in audiences, was the 1981 film Threshold. It's a film about the implementation of permanent artificial human hearts. This medical technology had already been built by then and tested in animals but required public willingness Today, this doesn't surprise us as much as it did back then. But because of the fears and ethical concerns, science consultants had to work together with filmmakers to establish the necessity of this technology, the normalcy of a person who receives an artificial heart, and the heart's viability, thus, turning something scary and unimaginable into something familiar and even desirable. All because we saw it in a movie before.
0: What about Space Odyssey? That's
1: all I want to know about. <laughs> <laughs> so Another example I have for you guys is a tw- 2001 Space Odyssey, which is a huge movie, and we've all heard about it. So this film also had a techno-scientific agenda that exists, that is a thing. So it, w- it was probably not c- the first thought Kubrick had when he wanted to do the film, but it certainly occurred to his scientific consultants. And as David Kirby mentions, it was a highly anticipated film about the future in space travel. So a lot of private companies, government agencies, universities, and even research institutions provided free advice, I mean, for free. And they shared information on their future designs. And they did all of this just for the opportunity to shape the future of technological vision. But the main reason was for pre-product placement, because, I mean, that's a thing, thing, pre-product placement. So, we have established that seeing a prototype of your design featured in a high-profile film will no doubt help with real-world funding, or ease entrepreneurs into taking financial risks when it comes to technology. Films like Johnny Mnemonic, for instance, convinced entrepreneurs to invest in data gloves and virtual reality glasses, I don't know if some of you are familiar with the film, but it's, um, it's a film where Keanu Reeves, actually, wears reality, like, data, data gloves and reality, virtual reality glasses. And that film really, really helped to help ease entrepreneurs' fears into investing in this sort of technology. And finally, we can establish that such films have stimulated the, the desire for technological advances in the public, actually. So needless, needless to say that the techno-scientific agenda behind sci-fi films was a real mind-opener for me. It's just not, not just because I really like sci-fi films, but it made me look into these in a whole different way and is part of the reason I find diegetic prototypes so interesting. But let's not forget that a diegetic prototype cannot stand alone. It requires the use of narrative and context to be effective. Which brings me back to design fiction and its capability to act as a cautionary tale. It's the aspect I value the most in this discipline. And even though I've been talking about sci-fi concepts, I'm actually pretty wary of technology and I'm a skeptic. So I'm very uncomfortable of how much trust we place in technology and in the idea that technology will make things better and solve all our problems. Even the ones caused by technology itself and I often wonder if the necessity that a certain technology is supposed to solve or help with is indeed justified, or if it's just another construct of our consumerist society. And I know I'm not alone in this fear. In this so I think it is our responsibility, and not just because I'm a designer and in contact with a lot of designers, but I think it's our responsibility as humans to be informed and to make informed decisions. And so to raise the question, not of how the future looks like, but how it should
2: look like. I couldn't agree more, Yanni. The wicked problems created by the current mix of global challenges, from climate change to water security, calls for methods and practices that can bring into focus certain issues, such as how life is lived, how technology is used, and its implications, and how all of this unfolds. Although design fiction can be abstract and exploratory, I see it as a tool to spark debate, raise questions, challenge values, and address issues, particularly in the early stages of business and product development. I work as an innovation consultant and bring foresight and design into organizations. Often, companies show a utopian world in which people interact fluently and effortlessly. If it comes from technology companies, the narrative is mainly about demonstrating how awesome the technology is, How well it integrates into its context, how easily it can be operated, and how positively it contributes to people's lives and to society. The children's toy company Fisher-Price made a concept video imagining the tech-heavy toys of 2025. The baby products use virtual tech like holograms, but also physical elements like smart fabrics to strike a balance between screenless imaginative physical play and the addictive sensory thrill of screen time. The company attempted to merge the physical and digital to create an experience that used technology while maintaining imaginative play and human connection. The focus is clearly on bringing out the innovative and positive character of the technologies and their integration into a futuristic but recognizable world. There are hardly any storylines, plots, dialogues, emotions, and no conflicts or hints to any social meanings or implications that might take away from the concept. However, where they fall short is in exploring and discussing human issues and the social implications of their products.
1: Okay, but research has shown that technology has an influence on how children think when it comes to attention, information overload,
2: decision-making, and memory learning. Exactly. So, should Fisher-Price be obligated to regulate their toys? What system would need to exist in order to hold them and others accountable? I think we need more rigor in considering the ethical dimensions as much as the technical dimensions. We need to understand what is designed, why, and have greater consideration of possible consequences in the interest of responsibility to a common good. We also need to allow the time to develop a better course of action. So how
1: do you do this when the goal is usually profit-driven?
2: Covertly. (laughs) Exactly. Um, So I try and use design fiction as a part of the innovation process to enhance corporate imagination to include a more complete picture with consideration for social, cultural, and environmental values. I think of myself as an investigative designer because I help companies build a bridge from the present to the future by exploring ways the future could develop. I create plausible future scenarios, which could happen according to current knowledge of how things work, as well as use fiction in order to explore preferable or unpreferable solutions. When exploring new products or service ideas, I facilitate conversations around the kinds of experiences and social rituals that might surround the product, as well as provoke their assumptions about the present and the future, So by getting leaders to articulate their own desires and fears about the future, they more fully relate to their end users and understand the possible implications of their products and technologies, which hopefully influences their perceptions and decisions around the products that shape our future.
0: Um, I feel like governments could benefit from applying these too.
2: You're right, and I actually have a positive use case for you. Yay! (laughs) So, a UK flooding project was asked to look up to 100 years into the future. The project convened an expert panel in environmental change from agricultural land use to sea level change. They also recognized that political and social changes would be influential on how flooding is managed. A set of political options were developed, ranging from local autonomy to international interdependence and social values from consumerist to community-oriented. Scenarios were formed which helped experts in environmental factors expand the kinds of futures they imagine and help shape their models for a century's time. The value came in convincing UK policymakers to double national funding for protection against coastal erosion.
0: That sounds hopeful. Yeah.
2: <laughs> exactly. So my desire is to not only have companies and governments influence our future. But for local, regional, and global societies to have the tools and platforms to collectively and proactively shape the future too. I believe design fiction can be coupled with socially oriented co-design to engage citizens and practitioners in mutual inquiry and joint learning. Ultimately, I think the solutions to the world's problems are more likely to be new processes, lifestyles, and changes in meaning rather than purely material artifacts.
0: Thank you, Caroline. Thank, Thank you, you, Yanni. Yanni.
2: Thank you, Barbara. Um, This was our uh, recording
0: for the day. And um, yeah, that's it. Thank you for coming. Thank you so much, guys.
1: We hope you enjoyed our first episode of Voyager Radio. This is just the first of many exciting episodes we have planned for this year. In the future, we will choose a theme and invite
0: people to explore and criticise possible scenarios. We will also host design challenges which we will open to the community. After every show, we want you, our listeners, to send us your best guess of a diegetic prototype and its role in a speculative scenario inspired by that show's theme.
1: For more updates, Don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Voyager
0: Collective Berlin. And see you next time on Voyager Radio.